Deception in the Church series, part 21, and this is the second part of this whole group of teachings that I want to share with you. And what I'm going to be doing now is going a little bit off topic in terms of looking at deception in the church, but what we're going to be looking at is being able to identify what to look for within a church environment that will lead you to discerning whether you can be discipled in that environment or be discipled by the people in that environment or not. And so to start off with here, part two, we're going to be begin to look at immaturity and maturity in the church and what it looks like. And so I'm going to be concentrating on immaturity here and then we'll look into immaturity and we're going to start building up and um, focusing in on looking at the the uh, Ephesians 4 believer. What does an Ephesians 4 believer look like? A seduced Christian will always show themselves by continually running after all the fluff and garbage that you will find out there. And that's my statement to begin with. And um, one of the statements in terms of Helping me identify a Christian that is immature. Ephesians 4, 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful schemings. The picture here is the picture of a immature believer and it's a very very dangerous situation to be in is when you are immature and remember immaturity I'm not talking about necessarily chronological age because you can be an immature Christian even if you've sat in the church for 30 years you can be immature by repeating year one of your journey over and over and over again or not allowing any growth to take place because you've got all these different types of strongholds. Even though you might be in a position of leadership, there will still be immaturity. Uh, again, you will see the mark of immaturity. You'll find it in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 9. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our heart to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods which is of no benefit to those who do so. I'm going to be looking at 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 5, going into it. And there's a couple of things I'm going to highlight once or twice for you because I've, I really, I consider them pretty important. And I just want to share them with you. Verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of, the evan of an evangelist, Discharge all the duties of your ministry. So what we're going to start to do is build, build into understanding what a mature, 
Ephesians 4 disciples, what a war horse looks like, how to train one, how to identify one, how to, how to measure someone who becomes an overcomer in Jesus Christ. A couple of things I want you to take note of within that passage of Scripture. Uh, in verse 1, in view of his appearing in his kingdom, and in verse 3, for the time will come. These two statements for me put me into an eschatological time frame. In other words, end times. So Paul is warning Timothy, his disciple, and he's saying, listen, I want you to pay attention because in view of Jesus coming, you need to do the following things. I'm, in, I'm charging you, I'm ordering you to do the following things. And it's to do with the word of God and how to prepare it. Now, a disciple, in verse 2, a disciple maker and a disciple of the discipler, there is this interchange that takes place. And verse 2 basically sets the stage. In other words, I'm a discipler. I preach the word. I'm ready to impart any instruction, whether it is a set-aside set time of instruction or whether it is an opportune moment to instruct. Um, I, I, I give training, I give teachings, I give Bible studies, I preach. Those are set aside times of instruction in season. Out of season is when I'm with someone socially. When I'm in the gym with some of my youngsters that I, that I mentor. I bring them training out of season. The training involves correction. I'll correct statements they make. I'll correct attitudes, behaviors. I'll rebuke them. I'll tell them not to do stuff. I will encourage them. I'll call them forth into what God wants them to do. And I use great patience and careful instruction in what I'm doing. So I'm very attuned to who they are and what God wants for them. And so I'm continually pushing into these areas, um, correcting, rebuking, and encouraging all the time. Now, an immature believer is someone that will not accept correction and rebuking. An immature believer is someone who has a serious amount of strongholds within their lives. And the, basically they sheeple. And they are people that will run to conferences to be taught. They will be, always be learning, but they'll never learn. And I'll be giving you some scriptures in that aspect as well. But especially so in the end times. <coughs> in the latter times, the times in which we are living in, you are going to see a lot of believers now, and the vast majority are starting to tune in their ears to what they want to hear. And now you're starting to see all kinds of false teachings coming in from Babylon into the church and being accepted as the mainstream within the church. In actual fact, it's not the mainstream. The church is splitting, and they are the ones that are splitting the church. So, they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-12 talks about the man of lawlessness. Now, now, this passage of scripture, Paul is addressing a false teaching that has come into the Thessalonian church, and is disturbing the believers by saying that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has already taken place. And so you've, already you've got an end times eschatological time frame within this. Now as I read through this, I'm going to highlight a few things. I don't want to get on my hobby horse, which is end time teachings. I'm going to be developing that 
and hopefully be launching that around December. Verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him. Okay, so that talks about Jesus coming and it talks about the resurrection of the dead and the rapture. That's when it's going to take place. We ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by a word of mouth or by letter. Always asserting spiritual authority, the false teachers. Asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Verse 3. This is important. I've underlined this. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. So what I normally do when I do end time teachings, and you'll hear this when I do it, is the first thing I do is I look at the anchor points on the timeline. Now when I, what I refer to as anchor point is I refer to an anchor point as a point in time that is indisputable to most biblical scholars who are sort of mainstream biblical scholars. So an anchor point is the revelation of the Antichrist. An anchor point is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. An anchor point in the timeline is the flood of Noah, or is, is Genesis 11, which is the Tower of Babel, Abraham, Moses, the coming of, first coming of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Those are anchor points in time. They're irrefutable. You cannot misinterpret them. Some people will try, but you, generally speaking, you cannot. So in verse 3 and in verse 1, we've got two major anchor points. We've got the revelation of the man of sin, the Antichrist, and we've got the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes together. Let me read it to you. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming, and our being gathered to him, the resurrection. Verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, alright, the second coming, until the rebellion occurs, which is happening right now, the rising of apostasy within the church, Babylon rising, the Babylonians coming into the church, and the falling away that is beginning to take place, and uh, the remnant that's going to be persecuted. So until the rebellion occurs, and here's the anchor point, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. So here you've got two anchor points which, which, which um, bookshelf the uh, great tribulation period, that three and a half year great tribulation period. Man of lawlessness, second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before the man of lawlessness is revealed, you've got this whole rebellion occurring, lawlessness rising. Now verse 4. Now, I want you to notice what he does and what is termed as lawlessness. This is important because what you are seeing in the church today is lawlessness. An immature person effectively is someone who is lawless. Verse 4. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now I'm going to read to you a passage of scripture in 2 John 1, 7-11, which says that any person who does not acknowledge that Jesus Christ comes into the flesh, 
that person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Quotations. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. And so what he had in verse 4 do we read? He will oppose and will exalt himself. He will put himself in the place of where God is. And if you look at all the teachings that are coming into the church right now, it is an exaltation of self above God. It's false worship. Verse 5. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you have what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. So this is going to take place in the timing of God. God's in control. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and, with the, and destroy by the splendor of his coming. <coughs> Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. Okay, so now lawlessness is rising, Babylon is rising, and the coming of the Antichrist, which the Babylonian system is working towards, it's working towards worshipping the Antichrist, getting the whole world to worship the Antichrist. So verse 9 says, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness, the wickedness deceives those who are perishing. Now here I've underlined the rest of verse 10. This is important because when you begin to judge people, this is a crucial aspect from which you need to understand. You need to, you need to have this inside of you. Here it is. Verse 10b. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. That is so important for you to understand. They perish because they refuse to love those who are going to be saved. Now, verse 11, for this reason, okay, for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they believe the lie. That is frightening. Okay, so what is happening here is, People who allow themselves to move away from the truth, ultimately God is going to send them the delusion of what they believe. He'll allow them to go down that road. Because they do not love the truth and so be saved. I want you to put that in the back of your mind. For this reason. What reason? They refuse to love the truth and so be saved. 2 Timothy 3, 1-9 But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Now, here are, here are the characteristics of the last days. What you need to start to learn to do is, you need to start to learn to do is interpret this from a wolf coming in as a sheep and using super spirituality to try and disguise these kind of things. Verse 2. People will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money. Boastful. Proud. Abusive. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful. 
unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, verse 5. I've underlined this. So in your Bible, if you've got the opportunity, go and underline this. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Have nothing to do with such people. So, verse 1 last days verse 2 to 4 explains what these people are going to be like so you've got to you've got to scrape apart the wool, the sheep's clothing the disguise that they're wearing to identify what these people are these people are not lovers of the truth so if they're not lovers of the truth god is going to send them a powerful delusion but god is also telling you to have nothing to do with such people they, they are the kind who worm their way into the houses and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of truth. Just as Jamis and Jamris oppose Moses, I'll be speaking about these two later, so also these teachers oppose the truth. What happens to people who oppose the truth? For this reason, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, God sends them powerful delusions so that they will believe the lie. Coming back to 2 Timothy 3.8, they are men of depraved minds who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected. But they will not get very far because as in the case of those men, their folly will, will be clear to them already. Just looking at a few things here. This is, this is an end time passage. Verse 1 marks it down as an eschatological passage. Verse two shows you what the verse two to four shows you what these people are behind the sheepskin disguise. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They do not love the truth. Now I want to just step aside a little bit. Now this whole section that I'm going to be going into right now is is a supplement. In terms of when you come out of Babylon, well, what are you actually looking for? How do you need to be trained? So here, let me just go a little bit of a little bit of a side here and try and let you see how if a person stays in immaturity, ultimately immaturity will lead to depravity. And there is a very, very fine line. And in no time whatsoever, a wolf will emerge and corrupt the sheeple and the sheep, especially if that immature person is in the leadership of the church. They become a hireling, and when the wolf comes, they will not protect the sheep. Or when a wolf emerges amongst the congregation, they will not throw the wolf out. They will, they will, they will go PC correct, and, and they'll, not, they'll not deal with it. Now, a church that allows corruption to come in and steps away from the truth. A believer who steps away from the truth. I've shown you what happens in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 11. They get sent a delusion. You can read that in Romans chapter 1 as well. 
I've shown you in 2 Timothy 3 verse uh, 5, they have a form of godliness. That's the disguise, but they deny God. They deny His power. They deny His truth. And how the Bible says have nothing to do with them. In the Old Testament, the prophets, when they were prophesying against Israel, just before a destruction, <coughs> compared her with all the other fallen cities around about her. And it's very, very interesting, basically, to see what took place. In Ezekiel chapter 16, 49 and 50, we see this. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. Okay, so if we go, if we go and look at what did Sodom, the Sodomites do, well, here it is. Here's a more in-depth look at what they did. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty. They did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. Go and read one Thess- uh, 2 Thessalonians, uh, chapter t- uh, no, one, uh, 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 2 to 4. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have nothing to do with these people. So now, God, through his prophet, begins to connect what these people did, how they behaved, with Israel in the Old Testament. Isaiah 3 verse 9, The look on their face testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. Interesting to see all the parades we are having lately. They do not hide it. Woe to them, they brought disaster on themselves. It's, it, it, it is a very frightening thing when the Lord begins to bring judgment. Now what happens is when judgment comes, it comes suddenly, it comes severely. It, it, it seems to come out of the blue. It it's, it's creates upheaval. Crea- the, 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 the mayhem that goes with it is frightening. And people turn to God and say, how could you let this happen? But what happens is, because of the arrogance and pride of people and their love of pleasure rather than love of God, they continually to miss the markers and the signs and the prophets and the people that God sends their way for them to repent, for them to change. And so through a process of discipline and then chastisement, these people are not listening to God. They're not watching for the signs and they are missing the signs of getting off the road of destruction and onto the narrow path. So when the destruction actually comes, it is sudden, but they've forgotten the whole period of discipline and chastisement. I want you to listen to what happens when judgment actually begins on the children of Israel. And I'm going to read out of Isaiah chapter 3. What I want you to do when I read this passage, I want you to think about it, go home, meditate on it, study it, think about it, and 
apply to, to, to what you see in the church today, what you see in society today. Uh, as I read the scripture, I read the scripture in preparing to go do the podcast, I read the scripture. And for lunch I sat down and I watched a, a political program on TV, listening to them analyze the different political parties. And I'm thinking to myself, my goodness, these politicians are like children. It's incredible. Now, apply, that, apply this scripture to today. Apply to the church. Apply to society. Apply to our politicians. Um, there is a lack of elder statesmanship in the church. There is a lack of, of, of great men and women of God that the church will stop and listen to. Same with our society. Same with everything else. It's just people seem to be running after things that are popular, that tickle their, 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 their ears. In, in the political realm, people are just voting people that are going to give them stuff and entitlements. And they, they don't care if the countries are running into the ground debt-wise. They're not listening to the signs. So in Isaiah chapter 3, we see this. See now, the Lord, the Lord Almighty is about to take from Judah and Jerusalem both supply and support. So at the beginning of the judgment season, supply and support goes. So what is that? All supplies of food and all supplies of water. The hero and the warrior, the judge and prophet, the soothsayer and elder, the captain of fifty and man of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman, clever enchanter. I will make boys their officials. Mere children will govern them. People will oppress each other, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The, you, the young will rise up against the old and base against the honorable. A man will seize one of his brothers at his father's home and say, You have a cloak. You be our leader. Take charge of this heap of runes. But in that day he will cry out, I have no remedy. I have no food or clothing in my house. Do not make me a leader or of the people. Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. They look on, the look on their faces testifies against him. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster on themselves. Tell the righteous it will be well with them. So the remnant. For they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. Disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what they have done, what their hands have done. And, and so it goes on. You, youths oppress my people. Women rule over them. O oh, my people, your guides lead you astray. They turn you from the path. The Lord takes his place in court. He rises, rises to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and the leaders of his people. It will be, it is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding their faces of the poor? Declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. And so it goes on. Very, very frightening, but very, very insightful. Within this passage of scripture, you can gather up a lot of useful information as to the state of affairs with regards to people, churches, nations, with regards to their attitudes. The depth of the depravities of a person who walks away from the light is something serious to think about and consider. 
Um, if you look at end times, persecution will rise against the church. And Jesus himself says, brother will betray brother, etc. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, when someone walks away from the truth and the love of truth walks away from them, what generally happens is a level of hatred rises within them against the people that they've walked away from. The people that are staying in the light, they, they, uh, they, there is a rising of hatred and viciousness. And these are the ones that are going to be coming in and bringing a lot of persecution against the church. These people that are going to get subsumed by Babylon. You can look at the, for example, in history, you've got the office of the Inquisition from the Roman Catholic Church where they persecuted and murdered and tortured uh, Christians. You, you look at the religion of peace currently in the Middle East right now, where people are turning a blind eye to the horrific barbarity and viciousness of murder, crucifixion, uh, cannibalism that is taking place right now. And so the judgment of the Lord begins to fall. Uh, the Lord then begins to compare the fallen Jerusalem to the depraved Gentile cities around about her. And, he, and there's a mark of things that come out there where he says, actually, you are worse than them. I want you to listen to verse 44 to 59 of Ezekiel 16. <coughs> and then I'm going to highlight a couple of reasons that Ezekiel brings about for people going into exile out of this, past, out of this chapter. Verse 44, everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb about you, like mother, like daughter. You are a true daughter of your mother who despised her husband and her children. Underline that. That's a significant thing that you will, you will find in terms of a, a false church is that they, they despise God the Father. And then they begin to despise and, and ridicule and mock and persecute those people who are staying true to him. And you are a true sister of your sisters who despise their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father Am, 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 Amorite. Sorry. <laughs> your older sister was a Sumerian who lived in the north with, uh, of you with her daughters. And your youngest sister who lived in the south of you with her daughters was Sodom. I've, I've underlined this next verse of scripture. Verse 47, and this is what happens when people walk away from the truth and deny the truth and do not love the truth. Excuse me a second. Oh, sorry, I've got this cold. Uh, verse 47. You not only follow their ways and copy their detestable practices, but in all your ways, you soon became more depraved than they. Uh, when I do my end time studies, I'm going to be investigating passages of scripture like this and looking at the levels of depravity that people go, go through and what we're going to be facing during these last days just before Jesus comes. Verse 48. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. Now listen to this indictment against the church. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, and they did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore I did away with them as you have seen. Samaria did not commit half the sins you did. 
You have done more detestable things than they, and have made your sisters seem righteous by all the things you have done. Bear your disgrace, for you have furnished some justification for your sisters. Because your sins were more vile than theirs, they appeared more righteous than you. So then, be ashamed and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. However, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters, and of the Sumerian and her daughters, and the fortunes along with them, so that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all uh, you have uh, done in giving them comfort. And your sister Sodom with her daughters and, and, and Samaria with her daughters will return to what they have, were before. And you and your daughters will return to what you were before. You would not even mention your sister Sodom in the days of your pride before your wickedness was uncovered. Even so, you, now score, you are now scorned by the daughters of Edom and all the neighbors and the daughters of the Philistines. All those around you despise you. You will bear the consequence of your lewdness and your detestable practices, declares the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. So Ezekiel shows us eight reasons in, in this uh, passage, in this chapter, for the exile that will be coming. Gra uh, graphic pictures, very, very frightening. Uh, very, very yeah, sexually explicit in terms of the prostitution that God's talking about here and what, what the spiritual people of his day were doing. So the first reason, verse 15a, is pride. You, but you trusted your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. The second reason is spiritual prostitution, and that's 15b onwards. Uh, to become a prostitute, you lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried out your prostitution. You went to him and he possessed your beauty. You took also the fine jewelry I gave you and, you and the jewelry made of my gold and silver and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the flour, olive oil, and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. This is what happened, declares the Sovereign Lord. So remember what I've shared with you and taught you about spiritual prostitution and how that relates now. Any, any form of idolatry, any form of worship outside of worshipping God is spiritual prostitution. Same passage of scripture, verse 16 to 19, you can see a materialistic idolatry. So there was a spiritual idolatry and there was a materialistic idolatry in setting up of idols and offering and all that made before these false gods. Uh, human sacrifices, number 4, verse 20 to 21. And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. <coughs> For me personally, I see two things here. One, I see abortion taking place for uh, reasons of um, sexual experience, uh, being able to maintain a current lifestyle, and people are, are, are basically murdering their children because they're using that as a form of, of contraception. And also as well as I see them basically leading their children 
into false worship. So all these teachers out there that are introducing all this paganism into the church under the cover and disguise of being Christianity in the emergent movement, in the charismaniac movement, they are leading the young people and sacrificing them to idols. That's what they're doing because these young people are actually getting into the stuff and they're not being taught how to worship the true God. Verse 22, they're forgetting God. That's number 6. Verse 23 to 25, they continue to propagate their prostitution. Uh, woe, woe to you, declares the Sovereign Lord. In addition to all your other wickedness, you build a mound for yourself and made a lofty shrine in every public place. Excuse me a sec. <coughs> At every street corner, you build your lofty shrines and degrade your beauty spreading your legs with increasing promiscuity to anyone who would pass by. A very, very graphic picture. And when I read that, the first thing I thought about was how we as churches are now suddenly using all kinds of methods to grab the passerby to come in and be part and parcel of this church. And so we are degrading the message of the gospel. We are degrading the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And we are just beginning to sell it cheap to anyone who wants, and they can come in and do whatever they want. And I'll read you a, a letter that gives you a, a very clear depiction of what I mean by that. Uh, number 7, verse 26 to 29, is trusting relationships with pagan nations. Again, you see the emergent church movement, you see the uh, ecumenical movement, the interfaith movement, you see the peace plan of Rick Warren. All these things basically are where we are aligning ourselves to the people of the world. You engage in prostitution with the Egyptians. You engage in prostitution, verse 28, with the Assyrians. They, they increase your promiscuity to include Babylonia, uh, verse 29. So continually we seek to enter into these relationships with the, with, with the Babylonian system, with the worldly system. And all it's going to lead to is going to lead to the destruction of these people that actually do that. So we've got pride. Spiritual prostitution, materialistic idolatry, human sacrifices, forgetting God, propagating prostitution, trusting in and entering into relationships, relationships with pagan nations and Babylon. And the final one, verse 30 to 34, we cast off all moral restraints. Remember what happens when an immature believer begins to walk away from the truth that leads to depravity. And here we see in verse 30 to 34 where uh, we cast off all moral restraints and anything goes. <coughs> and so you see in this uh, antinomianism, grace, 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 starting to fill into the church where people are not, uh, people are not fearing God anymore. All right, let's get back to the, the, the war horse, the disciple, the Ephesians 4 disciple. Ephesians 4 verse 5 says, Having a form of godliness but denying its power. Or the, the, the scripture in Timothy that I'm, I'm, I'm looking at. Uh, let me just get back to my notes and give it to you. Um, 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9. And then specifically getting back to verse 5. Having a form of godliness but denying the power of their, thereof. Um, on my feeds, one of my letters that I get, circular letters from various different 
you know, the Presbyterian, not Presbyterian, the Charismanian news, Charismatic news, or whatever. I get a lot of feeds coming in, and one of these feeds, the, the title grabbed my attention, and I went into it and read it. And I'm going to read to you the letter that followed this title. Now, I can't remember which feed I got it from. But it came to me in March 17, 2015, by a chap called Hemant Mehta, M-E-H-T-A. And apparently this is a guest post by a chap called John Shuck, S-H-U-C-K, who is a Presbyterian minister from the Presbyterian Church in the United States. Now the title is this, and I'm going to read it to you. <coughs> Excuse me, here we go. I am a Presbyterian minister who doesn't believe in God. How can you call yourself a Christian, let alone a minister? I get asked that question frequently and the questioner is hostile more often than not. Still, I like to answer it if I believe the questioner is sincere. Just a little by the way here. He, he now sets himself up to be able to only speak to those he wants to speak to. So he'll not speak to anyone who's going to actually challenge him biblically. Let's go on. Though I self-identify as a Christian, and I'm an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA, I raised eyebrows a few years ago when I posted an article on my website about how my personal beliefs don't align with those of most Presbyterians. For example, I believe that religion is a human construct. I believe that the symbols of faith are products of the human cultural evolution. I believe that Jesus may have been a historical figure, but most of what we know about him is in the form of legend. I believe God is a symbol of myth-making and not credible as a supernatural being or force. I believe the Bible is a human product as opposed to special revelation from a divine being. I believe human consciousness is the result of natural selection, so there is no afterlife. In short, I regard the symbols of Christianity from non-spiritual point of view, and yet, even though I hold these beliefs, I'm still a proud minister. But I don't appreciate being told that I'm not truly a Christian. Why is it that so many people think my affirmations are uh, anti-theoretical to Christianity, anti-heretical, sorry, to Christianity? I think it is because Christianity has placed all of its eggs in the basket of belief. We all have been trained to think that Christianity is about believing things. Its symbols and artifacts, God, Bible, Jesus, heaven, etc., must be accepted in a certain way. And when times change and these beliefs are no longer credible, the choices we are left with are either rejection or fundamentalism. I think of Christianity as a culture. It has produced 2,000 years of artifacts, literature, music, art, ethics, architecture, and yes, beliefs. But cultures evolve and Christianity will have to adapt in order to survive in the modern era. Many of those paths will be dead ends. As Daniel Dennett once said, the dinosaurs really had not died out because modern birds carry on many of their traits. Similarly, similarly as, religious, as religions evolve... They may look similar in some respects and quite different in others. 
You may not even call some of them religions anymore, depending on how you define the word. I believe one of the newer religious paths could be a beliefless Christianity. In this sect, one is not required to believe things. One learns and draws upon the practices and products of our cultural tradition to create meaning in the, pre- in, in the present. The last two congregations I've, I have served have huge commitments to equality for LGTPQ people and eco-justice, among other things. They draw from the well of our Christian cultural tradition and other religious traditions for encouragement in those efforts. I think a beliefless Christianity can be a positive good for society. Beliefless Christianity is thriving right now, even as other forms of faith are falling away rapidly. Many liberal or progressive Christians have already let go or de-emphasized belief in heaven, that the Bible is literally true, that Jesus is supernatural, and that Christianity is the only way. Yet they still practice what they call Christianity. Instead of traditional beliefs, they emphasize social justice, personal integrity, resilience, and building community. The cultural artifacts serve as resources. But what about belief in God? Can a beliefless Christianity really survive if God isn't in the picture? Can you even call that Christianity anymore? In theory, yes. In practice, it is a challenge because belief in God seems to be intractable. However, once people start questioning it and realize they are not alone, it becomes much more commonplace. Since posting my article and in response to my ministry in general, many have opened up to me that they don't believe in God, but they like coming to my church. One young woman, after going through my confirmation class, joined the church. She read her, statement, her faith statement in front of the congregation. It was a powerful articulation of her social justice commitments in which she added that she didn't believe in God. The congregation enthusiastically welcomed her, of course. Personally, even though I don't believe in God as a supernatural agent or force, many still do. I utilize the symbol God in worship. This may be viewed as cheating, but since our cultural tradition is filled with images of God, it is near impossible to avoid. As a symbol... I am not yet ready to let go of God. It is a product of myth-making, I know that, but the symbol incorporates many of our human aspirations. I find that God, in inverted commas, for me, is shorthand for all the things for which I long, beauty, truth, healing, and justice. They are all expressed by this symbol and the stories about it. Someone Someone quipped that my congregation is BYOG, bring your own God. I use that and invite people to bring their own God, or none at all. While the symbol God is part of our cultural tradition, you can take it or leave it or redefine it to your liking. That permission to be theological, do it yourself, is at the heart of beliefless Christianity. I understand some Christians may react with hostility and panic to this idea. They already have, but it deserves an honest discussion. End quote. I'm neither hostile nor panicky, and to be honest, I'm not interested in having a discussion with this person in any way, shape, or form. Listen to this passage of scripture again. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 to 9. 
Mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. What type of people are these? They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Now you can connect that passage of scripture with the other passages I've read throughout this, this section in terms of you know, people getting teachers around them that, that they want to hear from them, that suit their own desires, that suit their own conceited ideas, that suit their own lovers of what they want to have. So they are loaded down with sin and so they'll go to people like this. Always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jamis and Jamaris opposed Moses, so these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as faith is concerned, is, is, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of the, those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. We read about Jamis and Jamris here in 2 Timothy. We read about them in Exodus chapter 7 and 8. These were the two magicians of Pharaoh that opposed Moses and were able to reproduce many of Moses' signs through by, by when he was before Pharaoh, excuse me a sec. <coughs> now what these guys do, and what the spirit behind them is, 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 it's a spirit that resists truth. It is a spirit that tries to corrupt minds and lead people into apostasy and showing an alternate God through, through mag, uh, magical signs, magical wonders, enchantments, training, teaching, and the different forms, and allowing all kinds of ungodliness to come in and be accepted as norm. You find the spirit in a lot of false religions, a lot of cults, and there is a very, very subtle deception that comes through them. And oftentimes you'll hear that these people hear from God, but in actual fact, they're open to the, the voice of the demon. This man and this kind of teaching is Babylonian teaching. He's a Babylonian. He's a wolf. And the biblical response to such a man is 2 Timothy 3.5. Have nothing to do with such a person. Now let me just step aside a little bit. Just going sideways a little bit here. I have a question for you to think about. Here you're sitting with someone like this. Or it might be a friend of yours who's gone into a little bit of sin that they shouldn't be going into. And uh, what takes place is, is, is they, they start to take on teachings that you feel they're just a little bit off. What do you do if the delusion they walk into is God sent? What do you do if the delusion that these people are running with is actually a delusion that is sent to them by God? You better pay very, very careful attention to this because this is the kind of stuff I'm going to be talking about when we talk about judging such people and their teachings and your response to such people in the church. Notice 
twice now he conveys his opinion in terms of anyone who criticizes him. I'm not interested in what they have to say unless we can dialogue with stuff that we both believe in and agree with. And he, he says, I agree some people might be hostile. They already have. But this deserves an honest discussion. No, it deserves a biblical discussion. 2 John 1, 7-11 So now, let's just go back. Before I read that passage of scripture. What do you do when God sends such a person a delusion? What do you do when you are told by God, stay away? You stay away. If you don't, what happens? Well, this is what happens. The sin that they are involved with becomes yours. The work that they are involved with becomes your work. And you will become a partaker in what they are doing. Think about this. What happens when God sends a delusion to such a person? So when such a person comes under a delusion, we've got to understand that this is a person who denies the truth. They've walked away from the truth. And God says, okay, you walk away from the truth. Here it is. I'll release this to you. I'll release you into this delusion. You can go with your lie and you can take the consequences of your lie. But anyone who gets involved with you, they need to stay away. Stay away from such a person or their sin becomes your sin. 2 John chapter 1 verse 7 to 11. <coughs> I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, have gone out into the world. What is this guy? He is a deceiver, and he does not acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, and he is out there in the world leading congregations of people who want to hear what he has to say, because it suits their lifestyle. Now, the next portion of this is frightening. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Okay? Now you need to underline that verse of scripture in your Bible. I say to you, because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world and such person, and, or said, any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for. Okay, watch out that you don't lose this faith life that you've been working for, the sanctification. Watch out, but you may be fully, but that you may be fully reward. Verse 9. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teachings of Christ, that's doctrine, teachings of Christ, does not have God. Whoever continues in the teachings has both father and son. This guy's an acknowledged, ungodly, atheistically, humanistically, postmodernist unbeliever, and he wears a dog collar. He, he gets employed by a church full of hirelings, and he is leading people astray. He does not have God. 
verse 10 and verse 11, I've underlined it and I've highlighted it. If anyone comes to you and does, and, and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Verse 11, anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Plain, simple, you've got no wriggle room, you've got no deviation room. Don't come to me and talk to me about having a discussion with me. Don't come talk to me about I can't judge because God is a God of love and he will never judge. I'm telling you now, you preach a God gospel that does not acknowledge that Jesus Christ came into the flesh. Uh, you are a deceiver. You're from the Antichrist. You are one of the Antichrists that have gone out. You do not have God. I will have nothing to do with you. I will not even welcome you into my home. And that's why the Jehovah Witnesses don't get anywhere with me. You Jehovah Witness, go away. Why? They do not acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh. Verse 10 and 11. Let me give it to you again. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. God is in complete control. God is sovereign. God can use anything and anyone to do what he wants because he is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He is all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. He is the Lord God. <coughs> now he has a fascinating story. Of God sending deception to the prophets. That means you've got to judge every word that comes to you. Judge whether it is from God or not. Because, you know, <laughs> just listen to the story. I want to read it to you. It's found in 1 Kings 22, verse 10 to 28. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria, with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, son of Kenai, had made iron horns and declared, This is what the Lord says, With these you will gore the Armenians until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing, Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious, they said, For the Lord will give it into the king's hands. Excuse me a sec. <coughs> verse 13 the messenger who had, had, had gone to summon Micah said to him look the other prophets without exception are predicting success for the king let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably but Micah said as surely as the Lord lives I can tell him only what the Lord tells me verse 15 when he arrived the kings asked him Micah shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or not Attack and be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hands. The king said to him, Excuse me. <coughs> How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then Micah answered, I saw Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you? 
that he prophesied any, he never prophesied anything good about me, but only bad. Micah continued, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this, another suggested that. Finally, a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. But what means, the Lord said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets, he said. You will exceed in enticing him, said the Lord, go and do it. So now the Lord had put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all the prophets, all those, these prophets of yours, and the Lord has decreed disaster for you. Now what's the response of the prophets? Then Zedekiah, son of Kenai, went up and slapped Micah in the face. Which way did the Spirit of the Lord God uh, go when he sent forth, sent me from, uh, he went, sorry, when he went from me to speak to you, he asked. Micah replied, you will find out on the day you go and hide in the inner room. The king of Israel then ordered, take Micah and send him back to Ammon, the ruler of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, this is what the king says, put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Micah declared, if you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through, through me. Then he added, mark my words, all you people. <coughs> when people have no love of the truth, when people walk away from the truth, and when people deliberately entice others to do the same, and those people with deliberate intentionality, follow the, the deceivers because they are teaching them what they want to hear. God will send them delusion. And you can read about that in Romans chapter 1, how the different levels of delusion come in. And with that delusion, you get degrading behavior starting to take place amongst the people. Romans 1.24, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Romans 1.28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, there it is. So God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they would do what ought not to be done. I'll guarantee you this, that in the, in the days ahead, there's going to be a very, very strong move to begin rewriting all these passages about sexual promiscuity in the Bible, especially with the coming of the gay marriage to Australia and what has already happened in America. What, mark my words on this matter. They're going to start to change your Bible. Now, this passage basically comes, now I'm, I'm going back to 2 John chapter 1. Now I read to you 2 John chapter 1, 7 to 11 about the deceiver and being the Antichrist. Now, that passage comes after the passage where John talks about true love. Now at the moment around the world today, you've got this love wins hashtag, whatever that means, I don't know. And, and you've got this whole promotion of love, love, love. Babylonian inspired, of course. And whenever you begin to raise the truth of God through the word, this gets thrown in your face. But in 2 John 1 verse 4 to 6, John gives a definition 
a very pertinent and short definition of what love is. Verse 4. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm writing you, I'm not writing you a new command, but the one we have had from the beginning. I ask that you love one another. So that's where they go. Well, we've got to love one another. Okay. Loving one another means we've got to walk in truth. Verse 6, here is the definition that they won't give you. And this is love. That we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Now for the immature Christian, you will find that they do not walk in obedience to the word of God. And so they start to degrade into depravity and into false doctrines. And they will start taking on these false doctrines. Now, look at this verse again. Don't you find it interesting that from the clarification of what love is, he goes straight into warning about deception. I say this, because many deceivers, so now he's just spoken about love in verse 6. This is what love is, walk in obedience. So walk in obedience to the commands of Jesus as you've heard from the beginning. His command is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers, alright, so they are gone out and they are perverting the gospel of the love of God. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. And in verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked ways. This is called the palliation of sin. And it is a tool of wolves. I'm giving you a tool here, so you need to pay attention to this. What is the definition of palliation? To palliate something is to make a disease or an illness less painful or unpleasant without curing it. Okay? So in other words, the disease is ravaging you. Palliation or palliative care is to ease the pain while you die. David's definition is this, to make sin less severe, to make sin sound less severe, to make sin sound less deadly without actually removing the sin or the cause of sin in a biblical manner. Keep your sin, keep your stronghold, keep your false belief, keep your false doctrine, keep your hatred of God, it's okay it's not going to kill you. Now you will find that self at the root of all Babylonian teachings. Babylon, as I said, the devil will offer you and give you anything you want. But ultimately, he's going to make you pay the price of worshipping him. So in the Babylonian teachings, you can get away with whatever you want. And it will be okay. You can do whatever you want. It's going to be okay. You can say whatever you want. It's going to be okay. As long as you subscribe to the party line. You can see that on TV. You can say whatever you want. But if the minute you speak against what they are championing, you're in trouble. That's Babylonianism. And that is a powerful tool to use in identifying the Babylonian church. Is a powerful tool to use 
to begin to identify a wolf's teaching, a wolf that is in sheep's clothes. A current example of this is just to look at the uh, gay movement, the gay marriage issue. Now listen to these scriptures here. Proverbs 17, 15. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests both. This is palatation. Proverbs 24, 24. Whoever says to the guilty you are innocent will be cursed by peoples and denounced by nations. Proverbs 28, 4. Those who forsake instruction praise the wicked, but those who heed it resist them. Isaiah 5.20 Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Ezekiel 13.22 Because you dishearten the righteous with your lies, when I had brought them no grief, and because you encourage the wicked not to turn from their evil ways and to save their lives. Micah 2.17 You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? Very, very frightening words, especially in light of the days that we are going in. Romans 1.32 Although they know God's righteous decrees, that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Let me begin to wrap up here. <coughs> to be released from the spirit of error, the veil of that error can only be removed if the lie is released. Okay, to be released from a spirit of error, the lie has to be renounced. You need to you need to expose the lie. You need to renounce the lie. You need to repent from the lie, because that is the only way the person is going to be released from these false teachings that are coming their way. One Timothy four one, the Spirit clearly says in the latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Frightening thing. People are going to abandon the faith. And you can go and read the horrific result of that in Hebrews chapter 6 from verse 3 onwards. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 6 to 9, we're looking at the characteristic of the wolves that I've read to you earlier on and how they worm their way in, gain control of a gullible woman. Who, who, people, who are, people who are carrying strongholds and people who are carrying sins these are the immature people that are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. I'm, I'm reading the scriptures that I've highlighted and I'm just paraphrasing that. They always, or they're always learning. They're always running to this conference, to that conference, to the other conference, but they never come into a knowledge of truth. There's no application of truth. It's like they use the word of God as a mirror. They look into the mirror and then they turn away and they forget what they look like. Just as Janus and Jamres opposed Moses, so these teachers will oppose the truth. Men of depraved minds. What do you do when you come across such a person? Stay away from them. Don't even allow them into your home. Don't even allow them into your circle of relationships. So to, to identify the immature. The immature person, according to Ephesians 4.14, is a person <coughs> because of their lack of character, because of their sinful desires, because of their 
uh, strongholds, lack of growth, are people that are tossed back and forth by ways, blown here and there, by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in the e e deceitful schemings. I'm going to end it off there. Uh, the next section, part three, I really now go into the supplementary, so you can skip it or, but, or you can go through it. And it'll be quite a lengthy series of messages. But we're going to be looking at disciples, what to look for in a disciple. So how to identify a mature disciple, what to look for. Um, we're going to be looking at wolves as leaders. We're going to be identifying root spirits. We're going to be looking at 2 Peter. We're going to go through 2 Peter. Uh, we're going to go through the book of Jude. Uh, we're going to be looking at pastors and shepherds and recognizing them as opposed to hirelings and a couple of other things as well. So that's what's ahead of you in part 21, Deception in the Church series. This is the end of part two. And uh, thank you for, for listening. God bless. Mm -hmm.